are so thankful you've chosen to tune in on whatever platform you're using, whether Podbean or through Facebook or iTunes. Whatever way you're listening, I just want to say thank you for joining in. We'd love to hear from you, so drop a comment to us or email us at thegrove267 at gmail.com. If you want to know more about us as a ministry, go to hisgrove.com, or you can also check us out on Facebook at Deeply Rooted Ministries in Canton, Texas. We believe God wants to use these messages to spread His truth to a needy world, but primarily a needy church, which needs the truth of the Word to resurrect among us so that Heaven's army will be equipped to win souls and train them up in the Lord. Jesus said if we know the truth, it will set us free. So help us to bring freedom to people's lives by sharing these messages in any way you can. Now to our podcast. Well, welcome listeners, those who are maybe with us for the very first time, uh, maybe those who have been with us on this journey through Romans, uh, welcome back or welcome to this. Now, we are going to be hitting Romans chapter 9 today. This is one of the ones that, as a standalone passage, can can be quite confusing. Like, I, I will freely admit there's things in here that if I were to only take Scripture for what it says in this one chapter... I could come away with some, some beliefs that would sound logical, would sound right. But here's, here's the issue. Scripture isn't all, only composed in just Romans chapter 9. Scripture isn't even composed in just the book of Romans. Scripture isn't even composed in just the book of, in the entirety of the New Testament. Scripture is composed in the entirety of the old and the new in its fullness. And you have to know how it all seam, seamlessly works together. And there might be times where you read a passage and you're like, wow. Like, let, give me an example. When it talks about how God said that when the Israelites were to conquer a territory and they were to go in there and he asked them to purge um, everything from them, leave nothing alive. You could look at that and say, whoa, hold up a second. I thought, I thought God is love. But that really seems like God is just vindictive and angry and a dictator to where he says purge men, women, children, and even infants. I want the most innocent thing purged from Israel because nothing foreign needs to remain. Or I could look on the flip side to talk about how great God's love is and his mercy and how forgiving he is. The idea is, is that in understanding the character of God, you need to know the fullness of the text. And the same way Romans 9 is the exact same picture. I could just do a microcosm of scripture and take my beliefs off of that, or I could extract all of the text in order to understand and believe what I would choose to believe through that. So hopefully that makes sense, because we're going to go through Romans 9, and I want, I want to bring in some questions and some other scriptures to hopefully give some context to this, because I believe that this has been a miscontextualized passage by many. Um, so, get into this. I would actually encourage you to go back and listen to my Romans 8 Part 2 podcast. There was so much going on um, in that that it, it was a difficult one actually for me to give because there's so much to go over. Uh, and, and if I'm being honest, after I got done, I didn't personally feel like I did it justice um, for how it could be taught or how well it could be taught. But my hope is, is that despite my possible inadequacies, that God will use that for his glory in a way that only he can. So I would encourage you to do that. Go listen to that one. But we're going to get right into chapter nine. He says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. 
My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have a great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. I'm going to stop it right there. Paul is talking about here how he has this unceasing anguish and sorrow for his fellow Jews. But he says something very key here. My kinsmen according to the flesh. Now we need to understand that the lineage that Paul descended from was a Jewish lineage. And he thought and and cared very deeply for his lineage, for the Jews. And he says something that I think has kind of given a lot of people pause in verse 3. When he says, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my kinsmen according to the flesh, my brethren. I've heard a lot of diagnosis of this passage in which Paul could actually choose to walk out of his salvation in order to be able to allow the Jews to have inclusion in salvation and that he himself would condemn himself um, to eternity in hell. I don't see that. And I know that you could look at this passage and, and maybe come away with that. But when I look at Paul's heart in Philippians chapter 1, when he says that it is... my desire and far better for me to die and go be with Christ than even to remain with you. I don't see that Paul's saying that he wishes that he could be accursed and cut off from Christ. Christ was his everything. And so it doesn't make sense with the heart of Paul to say that my whole existence for living is Christ. But here's what does make sense. I go back to Acts chapter 7 with Stephen When you look at it and he's now giving this discourse about from Abraham all the way to Jesus, showing how everything in the Old Testament is pointing to the person of Jesus Christ. And then he severely rebukes the Jews. He calls them uncircumcised in heart. He calls them stiff-necked people, always resisting the Holy Spirit, which their fathers didn't kill the prophets. And then they are enraged at him and they begin to, to, in one mind, go after Stephen. And they're stoning him to death. And in the midst of being stoned, in the midst of this persecution and pain, he looks up and he says, I see the heavens opened up and I see the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And to something to note, it's one of only two times it ever talks about that the Son of, the Son of Man or the Son of God is standing at the right hand. Every other time, it's sitting. And you could go back into Psalms. I don't remember what the passage is, but you can go back into Psalms where the other time is. And the, the premise of it is that when, when he sees one of his own suffering or when he sees one of his own going through a trial or going through something, he is standing there ready to give them help, not just sitting on it. And it, for me, that's a beautiful picture. But nonetheless, Stephen gives this incredible picture of the cross, of what Christ endured and suffered for the sake of sinners. And here's Stephen, a man who was not in the wrong, a man who was full of the Holy Spirit, full of power, full of wisdom, full of grace, suffering at the hands of sinners. An angry mob that did not want to let him stand. And there was a person who was watching that, and his name was Saul, who later obviously would become Paul, who's writing this. And I think that that example was exactly what Paul's talking about here. Not that Paul would lose his salvation so that other people could gain it, but that he would be willing to be cut off in the same way that Christ was cut off in that moment from God 
so that he could be a source of salvation for the Jews, so that he could be that shining example for them. Again, not that he would be cut off and accursed from Christ for all of eternity, but that he would be the expression of the cross as Jesus was unto Stephen and as Stephen was unto Paul. Paul says, I want to be that unto them. And I think that's an important distinction to note. And it goes into exactly what I was talking about. Scripture has to interpret Scripture. You must take every verse in light of the paragraph, in light of the chapter, in light of the book, in light of the New Testament, in light of the fullness of Scripture in order to understand it well. As Isaiah 28 talks about when it says, how, who is God going to instruct in wisdom and how is he going to teach them? It's going to be precept upon precept, line upon line, here little, there little. So we understand it in this fullness of the text. And I don't believe according in the fullness of the text that Paul's heart was, uh, yeah, I mean, Christ is not as special to me as what the Jews were according to the flesh. So I would just wish that I was cut off from Christ because I just love them so much more. That's actually what I've heard. I've heard people say that. And let me just tell you, I don't believe that has any bearing whatsoever in Scripture. No validity to it whatsoever. What does is that Paul wanted to be the expression of Christ unto the Jews so that they could find salvation through his example, which is why he says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. One of the other things that I wanted to make sure that I talked about that I actually forgot to go over previously is, again, the concept of the if and the then. And you might not be familiar with this concept, but if and then, to me, are two of the most undertaught words in all of Scripture. If and then. So like for instance, Second Chronicles 7.14. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from the wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven. And he talks about forgiving them and healing their land. See, there's the if and the then. It's the conditional phrases in scripture that we oftentimes eliminate because we only want to just put things into the sovereignty of God category. And say, well, God is the one who's going to do this how he chooses. And it, do, it has nothing to, bear, to do with man. And we are going to even cover that in Romans chapter 9. But in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, he says this. Starting in verse um, 15. Well, let's just, I'm sorry, let's just start in 16. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, as God said. I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you. And I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Now that is a very important passage to note, because it's an Old Testament prophecy that's looking towards the New Testament and who we are now in Christ. We are the temple of the living God. It is not a proverbial thing. It is not just simply something that is of human hands, as it talks about that God doesn't dwell in temples made by human hands. He dwells in human hearts. We are that temple. Paul makes that clearly established in 1 Corinthians. And he gives us the conditional statements of because we have these promises that God says that I will walk with you, I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me. If you go out and separate yourself from the world, touch no unclean thing, do not walk as they walk, do these things, cleanse yourselves from all um, 
defilements of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of the Lord. Since we have these promises, let us go about fulfilling our end of the promise. It's not an unconditional promise that God's going to do. The scripture and the text that I just read clearly states there is a condition to the promise of abiding with Him. And this is going to come into play in the rest of Romans. In chapter 8, I talked about in part 2, and in Romans chapter 9, and even going on into chapter 10. When he talks about it in this concept, which is bringing everything to completion or fruition of what he's trying to establish in Romans chapter 9. When he says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, I could just include this, then you will be saved. Did you catch that? Even going to 13. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This is what everything in Romans 8 and 9 is leading towards into chapter 10. Is the coming about of Jesus Christ. As Ephesians 1, 2, and 3 puts it. It is that predestined plan that God has established in Christ. And everything he did in the Old Testament is leading to that manifestation of his will. The coming of Jesus Christ. Everything he did. I do believe that there were people in the Old Testament that God predestined. I do believe that God appointed certain people in the Old in order to bring about his purpose in Christ. To be the firstborn among many brothers, as Romans 8 put it. So, with that kind of foundation, as I established kind of, or hopefully established in Romans chapter 8 leading into this, we're going to move forward. He says in verse, oh, I can't see it because I've got my uh, marking on it. I guess, yeah, verse 4. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. And amen. So Paul is establishing this concept that um, the Jews, they had everything given to them. Though they had all things given to them, here's the reality, they gained nothing. In the end, the Jews gained very little, if not nothing. And that's going to make sense as we go through a few different passages where it talks about even Romans 11, we'll get to that one day, um, you know, in the next couple podcasts, where it talks about that they were cut off. They were cut off. It is no longer about the covenants and the promises that were made to them. That old covenant, that old testament, that old contract has now been made obsolete, as Hebrews 7, 8, 9, and 10 tell us. It has now been made obsolete. All the promises and the commonwealth and the adoption and the glories that all came under the old testament... Unto the people, unto the Jewish people that God made the, the covenant with, has now been made obsolete. Again, as Hebrews chapter 7, 8, and 9 all talk about. You could even look at it in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 when he says this. In verse 7, now if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone, I'll let you understand what that is, it's pretty simple came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of his glory, which was being brought to an end. Will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Check this out. Indeed, in this case, meaning now in the new covenant, in the blood of Jesus Christ, in this case, what once had glory 
has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. Did you catch what that said? That means that all the promises, the glory, the adoption, all those various things, the covenants that were made with his people under the old covenant have no glory at all because of Christ. That is a very important distinction to make. And I could go through and read in Romans 11. I think it starts like around in 17 through 23. And maybe we'll read it in a little bit when it's a little bit more fitting to the context. But here's the reality. That which was is no more because of that which is. Let me say it again. That which was is no more because of that which is. And that is, is Christ. And Paul recognizes this. He understands that. And he's stating, I have this unceasing anguish and sorrow. I love them still. These are, these are my, my dudes. These are my homeboys. These are my guys I grew up with. This is my lineage, my ancestry, my descendantry. And I want them to come into what is and stop looking to what was. So I want to be the example of Christ unto them as he was unto me. Because I was that sinner that persecuted the church of Jesus Christ. I was the one who was ignorant and blind and dead in my trespasses. But God being rich in mercy called me out and gave me this unbelievable privilege to be part of the glory of heaven according to the spiritual things of heaven, not the physical so he goes on, he says in verse 6, But it's not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. Now, in order to understand this, I think we need to go to Galatians chapter 3. And I would highly encourage, if you've ever wondered what the distinction and the relationship is that the believer has with the law of Moses, I would encourage you to go read chapter or uh, all of Galatians. Specifically honing in on 3, 4, and 5. But here's what he says in chapter 3. And I'm going to start in 15. To give a human example, brothers, even with the man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say into offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, who is Christ. He says, the whole prophesied thing about Isaac has nothing to do on the basis of lineage of the flesh has everything to do in the belief of the promise of what was to come and now what is in Christ. It wasn't ever about Isaac. It was always about Christ. It was always about God's predetermined plan to bring about the person of Jesus Christ in order to be the atoning sacrifice for the sins of all mankind so that the curse of sin could now be revoked among those who come into Christ. The law only gave the band-aid, but we were still subject to sin. We were still slaves to sin, as what Paul has been talking about previously in, in Romans. But now that in Christ we have been set free from the bondage of sin 
It's not that we've just been forgiven of all past, present, future sins. I've talked about that in previous podcasts. I don't believe that to be true. It's that we have now been released from the curse and the bondage of sin. We no longer have to be servants to it. And that was accomplished through the person of Jesus Christ and it was always God's plan. I could even take you back to Adam and Eve about how God even detailed the coming of Christ. And where Adam failed, Christ would abound and be victorious. I was talking with a guy just even yesterday about the concept of Samson. In Samson, you see this guy that represents the strength of Christ. I've, I've done a sermon series before about it. You can actually find it on the podcast channel or go to hisgrove.com. You can find it where I've done a, a sermon series on the characteristics of Christ revealed through people in the Old Testament. Samson representing the strength of Christ. And it says in his lifetime, he slayed the Philistines, right? The Philistines represent the demonic host. And it talks about the end. He had to rely upon the Lord God in order to have this one big, big surge of strength in order to slay the Philistines. It talks about through his death, he killed more Philistines than he did even by his life. But the interesting thing is, is that the way that God had orchestrated this parallel unto the cross of Christ was when Samson prayed, God, give me strength one more time in spite of my weakness Give me this strength. And so he put one hand on this one pillar to his side and he put one hand on this other pillar to his side and he pressed the pillars out. You know what, a, what image that makes? A man who is standing there with one arm stretched out to the right and one arm stretched out to the left makes this perfect image of the cross of Jesus Christ. And God is detailing to us an image of the cross of Christ hundreds of years before it even happened. Saying that through this one man's work and atoning work, that the, that which enslaved you would be no more. And so Paul realizes and understands that all that was, including these people who are his kinsmen according to the flesh, not of the spirit. Let me just say it very clearly right now. Your identifying and relationship with that of the flesh does not have a higher priority in your life than that which is of the Spirit. Your spiritual relationship to the body of Christ is of more importance than any physical relationship that you will ever have on this side of earth, on this side of heaven. Look, at, look what he says in 1 John chapter 3, because you want to know whether or not you've actually passed from death to life? You want to know if you're actually, if you belong to Jesus Christ? You look at John 13, 34 through 35, when he says, A new commandment I give to you that you love one another as I have loved you. By this, the world will know that you belong to me if you have love for one another, meaning the body of Christ. He also says this, We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love, meaning loving the brothers, abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to also lay our lives down for the brothers. There is no physical relationship. I don't care if it's your wife. I don't care if it's your children. I don't care who it is. There is no physical relationship that is of more value than your spiritual union with Christ and his church. So he goes on. Let me, uh, I could get off on that topic because that is a very passionate topic for me. Um, 
I think I left off eight. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of promise are counted as offspring. That's where we went into Galatians 3, 16 through 18. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. This goes into chapter 4 of Galatians. I'd encourage you to go read that one. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Why does Paul bring this up? Like, why, why does he even bring this up? I'll tell you why. Because he talked about it is not those of the flesh who are inherit the promises, but those of the spirit. Paul is bringing up the concept of the firstborn and the secondborn. And that might be a new concept to you, but let me just tell you, the first shows the weakness of man, and it is rejected by God. Look at Adam. Adam was the firstborn. Jesus, technically, is the second Adam, and the firstborn among many brothers, under this new covenant. Old Testament. New Testament. The old is rejected. The new is accepted. Jacob and Esau. Who was born first? Esau was. Who was born first? Ishmael or Isaac? Ishmael was. Who were the ones who were accepted? Jacob and Isaac. The second born of the two. You could, you could go through and find the concept of the firstborn all over the place. But what Paul's trying to show us to do is that the firstborn, the flesh, is rejected so that the secondborn, the spirit, can be accepted. This is what Paul's trying to identify here. Everything that was done in the Old Testament was a predestined plan by God in order to bring about Jesus as the secondborn, so that he and all who are in him can be accepted and not rejected. I mean, even Jesus' very, his very lineage was orchestrated by God. Rahab, a Gentile um, prostitute, is in the lineage of Jesus. And God orchestrated that in order to give us something in the very essence of his lineage that teaches us something about the coming covenant that would include Jews and Gentiles. And we'll talk about that even just a little bit. But the concept here, I talked about in part two of Romans 8, this concept of election. It's not necessarily that God simply just predetermined who was and who isn't. It's that God had predetermined that in Christ they would be the choicest of all of people. Same way as in the Old Testament. His purpose of election is a concept in which the Jews were the choicest of all people. But obviously, as I just mentioned, Rahab, a Gentile, God still cared about her. It just wasn't his people until she essentially converted. And I hope that you understand this concept because it's not just simply God predetermining, oh, you're gonna, I'm going to create you to go to heaven and I'm going to create you, sorry about your luck, to go to hell. That's not what this is referencing when you hear the term elect. Elect is a Calvinistic term that's been inputted into scripture, but technically the word really is not meaning elect in the sense that we think of it is today. It's choicest. It is the highest of a certain, I use the analogy of a meat market, right? You have your filet mignons, you have your top sirloins, you have your ribeyes, you have your porterhouses, all those steaks that are considered the choicest steaks of the meat. But you know what? All that meat is available. 
And so while the word electos is the Greek word, and elect is the word that English get, we get from English, I think that we've, we've hijacked that term today to mean something that doesn't actually in the context of Scripture. So he goes on and he says this, What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. So here's one of those passages, that if I were to take it on its own, I can completely see how people would come away with this idea that God simply just determines what he wants and we have nothing to do or to say about it in the equation. It is simply the providence of God. Let me, I think it's interesting that it brings up Pharaoh because a lot of times we hear and see the part where it talks about how God hardened Pharaoh's heart. But we fail to recognize that in Exodus 8, which by the way, Exodus 8 um, 15 is just as much written by God as the other passage, which I don't know what the reference is, where it says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Listen to what he says. But when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, meaning whenever uh, God's hand actually lifted a little bit, when he said that he was going to let the people go, and God lifted that hand, and there was a respite from the things that were happening, he says this, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them as the Lord had said. So you see a mutual process or a mutual um, working in the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. It's undeniable that God was involved in the process. But it's also undeniable that Pharaoh himself was involved in the process. And for me, this is interesting because I don't believe that this... Um, passage is saying that is unconditionally, unequivocally, all on God's end and there's nothing on man. Because what did I talk about in the beginning? If and then. The if and thens are all over scripture. I mean, we're going to look in Jeremiah chapter 8, 1 through 11 here in just a little bit when he talks about this concept of the pot and the clay. And you're going to find how there's now a condition even to be in the clay as to how the potter is going to interact with that clay. But if I were to only read Romans 9, I would see it only as the potter has the right over the clay. Missing the fact that Paul's even just posing questions, not stating eternal decrees. Here's the reality. What God is declaring here through the hand of Paul is that the choice belongs to him as to what he's going to do. If he wants to show mercy because somebody has repented, even if you don't think they're worthy of it, it ain't up to you to decide. It's up to God. The choice is his. It's all in his court as to what he chooses to do. It is not solely, though, on his sovereignty, but it is inclusive. Listen to what he goes on to say. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? Notice the question marks here. But who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one, for, one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? 
What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles? Notice all the questions that Paul's posing and saying, what if God wants to do what God wants to do? Who are you to question him? Who are you to say that God can't do this or God won't do this in a way that is outside the confines of God's word? Listen to what he says in Jeremiah chapter um, 18. Let me get to it real quick. I'm flipping to it in my phone, so it's going to take just a second. All right, here's what he says. It's going to take a, take a little bit to read through these 11 verses. He says, the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, arise and go down to the potter's house and there I will let you hear my words. So I went down to the potter's house and there he was working at his wheel and the vessel he was making of clay was spoiled in the potter's hand and he reworked it into another vessel as it seemed good to the potter to do. Then the word of the Lord came to me, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter has done? declares the Lord. Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. If at any time I declare concerning, pay very careful attention to this. If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do to it. If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will build and plant it, and if it does evil in my sight, not listening to my voice, then I will relent of the good that I had intended to do to it. Now therefore say say to the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I am shaping disaster against you and devising a plan against you. What what does he mean by that? Well, God had promised them good if they were willing to do what he said. God had intended to do good to Jerusalem and to Judah. But because of their evil that they had done, he's sending them a message with this pot in the clay. Then I have the right to do to you what I want, even if I intended for good and even if I promised you good. I have the right to do what I want with my creation. And because you did evil in my sight. This is what I'm going to do. Now, when we include this into the context of Romans 9, now all of a sudden this changes and shapes it just a little bit different in our perspective. If I were to only take Romans 9, I can totally see how Calvinists would come away with this. But it's not only about Romans chapter 9. He goes on, he says, Return everyone from his evil way and amend your ways and your deeds. That's what he says in Jeremiah chapter 18, verse 11. He's telling them to repent because if they repent, then he will amend his ways. Now, isn't that interesting that God says that I will amend my ways based off of what you do? Isn't that fascinating? For even more context on this, I'm going to turn to 2 Timothy chapter 2, starting in verse 20. And I want you to see what he says. Now in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay. Some for honorable use, some for dishonorable use. What did he just say in 21? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one, one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? He says this, Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself, notice it's not... If anyone is cleansed by God, 
He says, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. What is he saying? What is Paul, the same author, telling us? He says, if you choose to cleanse yourselves from the dishonorable passions of the flesh and choose to walk in the Spirit, as Colossians 3 tells us and as Ephesians 5, I believe, tells us, where it says, put to death the deeds of the flesh, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts. He says, essentially, walk in the Spirit. You have a part to play in this. It is not solely in the sovereignty of God to where God determines whatever He wants and that's just what's going to happen. You have a part to play. It is one of my biggest pet peeves when people take a scripture and they take it outside of the context of the rest of scripture. You can't have one or the other. You must have both. Even when it comes to salvation, there's a lot of people who side with 1 John and ignore Hebrews, (laughs) among many others. And then you have some on the flip side of it who they take heed to Hebrews, but they ignore 1 John. Let me just tell you, if you want to be a person that is approved before God, then you need to study to show yourself approved before God. Notice the condition. Notice the requirement. 2 Timothy 2.15, study to show yourself approved before God, a workman who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. The negative inference of that is, is that if you don't do that, if you don't study to show yourself approved, if you aren't studying in such a way so that you might rightly handle the word of God, then you might not stand approved before him. That means there is a condition. I talked at length about this, I think in Romans chapter 7, when I went over Galatians 6, 7 through 10, of the condition that's there. Man, if, if, I, if there's one thing that I could do in helping people to understand the Word of God, it would be to understand and perceive the conditions that are written in the text. Because I, I look out today and I see so many people who don't see the conditions because they don't have a full knowledge of the truth of God. So that's just 2 Timothy chapter 2, 22. Let's go to the same book in Romans chapter 10 and 21. And we're going to read something there that I think is going to be very fascinating to this um, argument that I'm trying to pose here against the concept of Calvinism. Romans chapter 10, 21. But of Israel, he says, all day long, I, meaning God, have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Essentially, people who just want to go against my word, people who are disobedient, people who are rebellious. All day long, I have held out my hand that they would try, that they would hopefully take what was in my hand. I'm holding it out to them, but they're just rejecting it. Listen to what Jesus says in Luke chapter 13, 34. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. Listen very carefully. How often I would have gathered your children together. As a hen gathers her brood under her wings. And you were not willing. Now, you tell me. How does that concept fit? That the Son of God says, How often I would have gathered you in. How often I held my hand out to you. How often I sought you. But you weren't willing. 
How does that fit in Romans 9? Because it doesn't depend on human will. Right? They weren't willing. It doesn't depend on human will or exertion. How does that fit? If it doesn't depend on human will, then why is Jesus saying, I wanted to gather you in, but I couldn't because you weren't willing. He had a desire. And to fulfill that desire, he wanted to gather Jerusalem, but they just weren't willing. How does that fit in Romans 9? You see, the problem is, is it doesn't. Therefore, my interpretation of Romans 9 must be wrong. You see, if my interpretation doesn't fit in the fullness of the text, then my interpretation of an individual passage must be wrong. Instead, here's what I want us to understand. What Paul is referencing here is all past tense. Okay, you might be like, well, what does that have anything to do with it? It has everything to do with it. If you look at it, everything that is here, again, going back to what I talked about in Romans chapter 8 and even here into Romans chapter 9, is leading us into Romans chapter 10. And you're like, wow, that's super profound. It's more profound than what you think. Oftentimes, the profoundness of Scripture is found in the simplicity of its teaching. Everything that Paul is talking about here through Romans 8 and Romans 9 is to bring about a truth that he's going to present to us in Romans chapter 10. And that is that everything in the Old Testament, that God had his hand over everything. And he even used the rebellion of Israel for his own glory. He brought about all these things and he was working in everything in order to bring about the plan of Jesus Christ. That's what Romans 9 is truly about. It is about the concept that everything in the Old Testament was being orchestrated by God. And while, yes, there was a harmonious balance between the Israelites and between God, and God did things to the Israelites because of the rebellion, and there was even times that he showed mercy on them even in their rebellion. But he did all of these things in order to bring about the person of Jesus Christ. In no way does Romans 9 mitigate or um, remove our responsibility within this covenant. I can't stand it when people talk about we don't have free will. Let me just tell you, if we don't have free will... If you're listening to this and you're a hyper-Calvinist and you think we don't have free will because you, you have hijacked a few, a handful of scriptures outside of the context and outside of the rest of scripture, then let me ask you something. If there's no greater love, as John 15 tells us, that a man would then lay down his life for his friends, if that is the greatest love that a man would choose to lay down his life for his friends, and that is how God has um, defined love is that a person would choose to lay down their life for another. Then how can I ever love God if there is no free will? If there is no choice involved and God chooses himself for me, I can't do it because I'm dead in my trespasses. Misunderstanding what dead in your trespasses means. It means that you're still alive. You still have choice. But if I'm dead in my trespasses. And I don't have choice to even choose God. And God has to do. Then how can I fulfill the most basic command in all of scripture. To love the Lord my God with all my heart, soul, mind and strength. It is impossible 
impossible to uphold that concept of love and obedience to the Father if there is no free will or choice involved. And you might be thinking, well, I do believe in free will, but I think everything is just determined by God. Those two are not compatible. You can't believe in free choice and free will and yet believe that everything is determined by God. You can't. It's impossible. Rather, look at the conditions within the text. If you do this, then I will do this. If you seek me with all of your heart, then you will find me. Draw near to me, and I'll draw near to you. Return to me, and I'll return to you. Look at the conditions in the promises. Free choice is littered throughout Scripture, as is the sovereignty of God. But the two go hand in hand, not exclusive of one another, but inclusive of one another. So can we stop just looking at Romans 9 through one specific lens and begin to broaden it to the rest of Scripture and look at what he's actually trying to teach us? The ultimate choice belongs to God. But we have a part to play in it. This is when he goes on, because he's about to go into this concept of how the Jews have been forsaken. And for a lot of people, you might, that might be news to you. But here's what he says. As indeed, in verse 25, he says in Hosea, Those who are not my people, I will call my people. He saw about the Gentiles. And her who is not beloved, I will call beloved. He says, under the Old Testament, the Gentiles were not my people. They were not beloved. They were not part of the choicest. Though they could come in, as we see through Rahab specifically, they could come in. They weren't part of the choicest. He says, and I, in every place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. A very clear distinction that of the Jews he talked about, that he, um, uh, oh no, he's about to get into it, I'm sorry. That the Gentiles, he's saying, they were not part of the covenants. They were not part of the commonwealth. Go look at Ephesians chapter 2. They weren't part, they weren't included in anything. But now, they have the privilege to be included through the person of Jesus Christ. But opposingly to that concept of how now the Gentiles have been given entrance through the person of Jesus Christ, according to God's predestined plan to bring about Christ so that anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord would be saved, he says this, and Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. Now he's going to talk about the inverse of this with the Jews. Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would um, have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. He says the inverse of the Gentiles' inclusion is... Israel's exclusion from this new covenant that has been established. Where now the covenant that was made, as Romans chapter 7 puts on, as, as Hebrews 7, 8, 9, and 10 put on, as Ephesians 2 puts on, as Galatians 3, 4, and 5 put on, the covenant that God made with His people, a death has occurred that has now redeemed us from that. It has been made obsolete for all those who come into Christ. 
We now come into the new covenant that he has established with his people to where there is no Jew or Gentile. See, the Gentiles are now in, the Jews are now out. I'm going to go back to this Luke, 4, uh, Luke 13 passage and I'm going to read what verse 35 says right after it. You know, the one where I said where Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city of the stones, the prophets and, and stones those. Uh, let me just read it instead of trying to quote it. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. And check out what he says in verse 35. Behold, your house is forsaken. What's he talking about here? He's talking about the fact that the Jews are now a forsaken people because of Christ's coming. To where now there is no Jew or Gentile that is going to be part of the elect, the choicest of God, the beloved, the, the betrothed of Christ. There is no earthly lineage that determines that. For the Jew, there was. There was an ancestry that was there that if you were born a Jew, you were born as one of God's people. Though you might not have followed him, you could have been like Ahab or you could have been like somebody who, who was not obedient to the will of God. But you still were born into the people of God. I mean, look at what else he says. I'm going to read. Let's read Romans 11, 17 through 23 right now. Here's what he says. And I want to encourage you to read actually all of Romans 11 because it's really good. But I'm just going to, for the sake of time, bring it down to verse 17. But if some of the branches were broken off and you, although a wild olive shoot, meaning the Gentiles, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches, meaning the Jews. He says, if you are, remember it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. He says, you might say, oh, well, the Jews were forsaken. The Jews were cut off. The ones according to the flesh were cut off from the wild olive or from the olive um, tree so that I might have room and inclusion to be grafted in. And here's what Paul says. That's true. They were broken off. Because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. Isn't that a fascinating thing that Paul states right here? He says, look, you were brought into Christ. You were given an entrance into Christ to share in the commonwealth and the promises and the glory of this new covenant that's been established through his blood. And the Jews were cut off. They were broken off because of their unbelief. They didn't believe in Christ. So they were cut off. That once the death occurred that established this new covenant and put to death the old, as Romans 7 talks on, they were broken off. They were cut off. And he says, but you need to fear. Wait, what? These Gentile Christians who have come into Christ, Paul's telling them, you need to fear. Fear what? Well, he goes on, he says, For if God did not spare the natural branches, meaning the Jews, neither will he spare you, meaning these Gentile Christians that he's referencing. Note then the kindness and the severity of God, severity towards those who have fallen, not according to his predestined plan of election, as many might think. Severity towards those who have fallen, but God's kindness towards you. And check this out. Provided 
you continue in his kindness or you too will be cut off. Man, it's, it makes all the difference in the world when you know that he's referencing Gentile Christians here when he references you. He says, note then the kindness and the severity of God, severity towards those who have fallen, but God's kindness towards you provided you continue in his kindness or else you too will be cut off just like them. Well, well that, that can't be what that's meaning. I assure you that it is. Because it's not just confirmed there. It's confirmed in every book of the New Testament. And I've talked about it at length many times. Let me just tell you. It says what it says. And it is congruent and confirmed by many other passages. You could go look at 1 Corinthians 9, 24-27 when Paul simply just relates it to himself. Not anyone else. You could go look at it in Galatians 6, 7-10. You could go look at it in Colossians 1, 21 through 23. You could go look at it in Hebrews chapter 6, 4 through 6. Hebrews 10, 26 through 31. Jude, go look at it in Jude for, for crying out loud. Verse 18, go all the way through, through the rest of it. Specifically honing in on 21. See, it's everywhere. 2 Peter 3, 14 through 18. Specifically 17 through 18 when he talks about don't get carried away with the air of lawless people and lose your own stability, which is a Greek word that actually means your own security. What is it that makes me secure in Christ? It's my faith. And while this is opening a can that I don't have time right now to just simply unpack everything there, let me just tell you, I want to give you food for thought because here's the deal. If I'm not going to present this as food for thought for you, you might not ever think about it. So I'm throwing these morsels out there to you because I want you to think on these things as you study the scriptures to show yourself approved before him. So here's what he goes on to say. To summarize everything that he's talking about, I encourage you to go in Isaiah 28, 14 through 18. Um, you can find this concept of what's being brought up here. Go into Ephesians 2. I don't remember exactly what the verses are. Just read the whole chapter. It'll be good for you. You can go into Hebrews eleven six, where it talks about without faith it's impossible to please God. Here's what he says. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith, as Paul talks about in Philippians 3. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. But as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone as it is written. Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. And then Paul says in chapter 10, verse 1. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them. Meaning the unbelieving Jews. The Jews who were his kinsmen according to the flesh. Which though he still loved and had unceasing anguish and sorrow in his heart for them to come to know Jesus Christ. Does not compare to the relationship that he had with the church through the spirit of God. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. And that which is born of the flesh is flesh. And the flesh cannot inherit the kingdom of heaven. Only that which is born of the spirit. So he says, my prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. Because they have a knowledge of God. And they have a zeal, I should say, for God. But it isn't according to knowledge. The gnosis in the Greek, meaning that intimate acquaintance and knowledge. And I'm going to say, through the person of Jesus Christ. 
as he says in verse 4, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to him who believes. Paul's summarizing this entire thing to say, look, everything that God did through the Old Testament, his purpose of election, if you will, if you put it, um, as Paul puts it here, to bring about Christ. Everything that he did was to bring about the person of Jesus Christ so that now in Christ, that one that I read earlier, the very popular one that many people quote, so that in Christ, this could be said of anyone who would call upon his name. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Everything that God did was to bring about his plan of Jesus Christ. And it worked in harmony with the free will of man. But ultimately the choice belonged to God in order to bring about Jesus. But now that Jesus has been brought, anyone can call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. It is not a predetermined person one way or the other, to heaven or to hell. It is anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord because God's desire through Christ is that each person, everyone would be saved. My whole thing on going over this chapter with you guys today, okay, I, I, I'm not, I'm not going to pretend to know the fullness of God's mind and heart. And I'm not going to pretend to say that I've got all the answers. Here's what I do want to propose to you in all of this. You might listen to this whole podcast and at the end of it be like, yeah, you didn't convince me. I'm not necessarily just trying to convince you. I'm trying to enlighten you to possibilities other than what you think you might know. I'm trying to bring in other scriptures that actually conflict with maybe what your perspective is of this passage. If you think there's no free will, then you need to answer the question in Luke 13, 34, where Jesus says, I wanted to gather you, but you weren't willing if you think there's no free will, then go diagnose it according to J Jeremiah 18. If you want to say that the potter and the clay proves that there is no free will, it's just orchestrated by God. When Jeremiah 18 says, no, the clay actually has a choice in this and I'm actually forming you according to how you let me do it. You've got to answer these things. You've got to look at it in 2 Timothy 2, 20-22. If anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he becomes a vessel of honorable use. When he says that God created one for honorable and one for dishonorable, how does this all fit? If there is no free will of man, how do these other scriptures... And by the way, I did not even get into many of them. I just gave you a handful of scriptures. So my, my goal in this is not to try to necessarily convince anyone, though, I mean, that, that would be good. I don't believe that, and my job is to try to teach the truth in order to conform people unto the truth. And my perspective of truth is that this is not a Calvinistic passage as many see it today. So yeah, I would love if you came to understand as I see this, because I believe it's true. But that wasn't exactly my goal because I know it takes a lot more than just one podcast to maybe undo a whole lifetime of teaching. My goal was to throw out some morsels of bread to you so that you could take those morsels and incorporate them into this passage and say, Lord, how does this fit together? And then seek Him with all of your heart and let Him show you.
Proverbs 8, 17. I love those who love me and those who seek me diligently find me. Isn't that a fascinating passage in light of what we've just talked about? I love those who love me. The cry of wisdom. I love those who love me and those who seek me diligently find me. Isn't that in and of itself free choice? Y'all be blessed.